Tonight's New Testament reading is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It can be found on page 2 in your bulletin. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Oh Lord, our God, we um, thank you for the church. We thank you for establishing the office of elder. But most of all, we need to see Jesus, our elder brother, uh, the chief shepherd, the great bishop of our souls. We pray that you would show us him, that every eye and heart would behold him. And we'll thank you in advance for that. In Christ's name, amen. So let me start with a, a quote. The single biggest way to impact an organization is to focus on leadership development. There is almost no limit to the potential of an organization that recruits good people, raises them up as leaders, and continually develops them. Now, that uh, author may have been glimpsing at the passage that we just had read because this is what's on the heart of our author, the Apostle Paul. And really this letter is a letter from a seasoned leader to a younger leader, to his mentee, one of his key mentees, Titus, who's probably in his 30s. And the letter overall, what we're looking at is how understanding the grace of God, and maybe you're just starting to come to understand the grace of God in your life. But understanding the grace of God produces goodness. So we're saying uh, gracious goodness is the name of the series. Titus has been deployed on the island of Crete for the purpose of establishing churches that will have that sort of health and that ethic. And that means establishing leaders. Titus is in charge of putting others in charge. And that is a critical responsibility. Why? Because we all know that leaders, good or bad, will have one thing, impact. They will impact things. And more than just things, people, and not just one people, groups of people. You know this from the leaders you've had in your life. Maybe it's been the coaches, the teachers, the pastors, the bosses. It is critical that there be good leaders. 
And from the Bible's perspective, that would be leaders that are transformed by grace and produce good fruit. This is what Jesus Christ would talk about. And as this letter unfolds, we'll understand that right now this looks like sort of a, sounds like kind of a stern job description. It's much more than that as the letter gets unpacked. And so what I want us to do is just look at two different parts of this. The qualifications for leadership and the organization or the structure that flows out of that. Flows out of the ethic, the values of a leader. So first, let's look at the qualifications. And uh, two, relational competence and personal character. Relational competence and personal character. Um, some of you may have been around here a couple years ago to hear uh, Dr. Diane Langberg uh, teach. Uh, she's an expert on basically abuse in the church, but also uh, has spent her career and life uh, dealing with blown up marriages, mostly ministers' marriages. How, how many of you were when she came a couple years ago? Yeah. You know, it really was a, a powerful thing. The first time Meg and I heard her was almost just a year or two into our coming here. I was part of this leadership experiment group. And uh, she spoke to us, and I'll never forget her saying, I, she just wanted to make it a short and sweet. She said, for those of you that are married, those of you ministers that are married, I want to say this to you. Your marriage is your ministry. Whatever you think your ministry is, your marriage is your ministry. What you make of it. You know, I think at that time I was like, I will say, she's right. She's right. Uh, who I am, who a minister is, in his covenant of marriage and at home is it is the spring water of who they become. So, uh, important point, by that she wasn't saying, nor is Paul saying that an elder has to be married. Paul wasn't married. We don't know if Titus was married. We don't think Timothy was married. We don't have evidence of that. And the big one is Jesus wasn't married, right? And our church has always had elders who were single. But in most churches, the case is that elders will be married and likely have children. And so Paul is speaking to the more general, common thing, and he says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. And by that, he doesn't mean an elder can't be biblically remarried. What he means in the Greek, really, is he must be a one-man woman. Elsewhere, when it talks about deaconess, it says she must be a one-woman... Wait, help me here. <laughs> I always mess that up, and I didn't catch it. First of all, Rob's back, he smiled. And he never smiles when I preach. Uh, and uh, he smiled. No, but then I got into she must be a one-man woman. You understand what I'm saying? An elder must be a one-woman man. And elsewhere, the deacon is a one-man woman. 
Right. He's saying that you must be faithful and not just like don't have affairs and don't just like stay in the marriage, but faithful like God. Steadfast love faithful. And if we look at some of the other places in the Bible, this is unpacked. The Apostle Peter will add, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor, cherishing them as someone of special worth in your sight. And, of course, the book of Ephesians, which is the marriage passage, the Apostle Paul says, husbands, you must have a servant leadership akin to Jesus, which means you lay everything down, everything down, so your wife may, your spouse may flourish in her strengths. So this is the vision Paul has. Maybe to summarize it, someone has said, cultivating unity, staying attentive, communicating value. The president of the seminary Megan and I graduated from um, has written quite a book on marriage and family, and he said, a man who is married but whose marriage is wrongly troubled or whose spousal commitment is unhealthy should be encouraged to step aside from church leadership consideration. Why? Because a health of a marriage does relate to relational competence. But also, Paul mentions children. And by children, that word means, in its original meaning, uh, children that are living under your roof, not adult children. And he says, uh, another translation, that they not be open to, you not be open to a charge of them being wild and disobedient. Now, before you go, there could be no elders or pastors, right? <laughs> you're all like going through your mind, those of you that have been in the church, like, what about, what about, what about? And I'm sure you're thinking about my kids too. But anyway... They don't live under my roof, so it doesn't matter anymore, okay? <laughs> Technically. Uh, no, seriously, I love them, and I'm only proud of them. <laughs> but, again, that original term in its setting in the first century meant anything from formal discipline hearings to criminal charges. So we're not talking about, like, teenage rebellion. Paul is talking about, like, if your kid is in, like, serious crisis and in a way that's, like, you're dealing with legality, legality and law and things like that, it would be better for you to wait to consider being a candidate for elder. Now, focus on first things first. It doesn't mean that a kid has to be converted because only God can do that. And it doesn't mean an elder's kid can't struggle with their faith or doubt out loud like everybody else. And so he's setting these parameters. But also, if we went to some other places in the Bible, uh, the father would be spoken to directly, where the apostle would write and say that uh, fathers should not deal harshly with their children and you should not exasperate your children. Exasperate means give them just cause to be angry at you because of either your hypocrisy your refusal to repent, your legalism, fill in the blank. And more importantly, Jesus issued a dire warning that those that cause children to stumble would be uh, under great judgment from God. So, the top of the list, Paul hits about his leaders, 
relational competence. And again, I will tell you that personally speaking, uh, being married uh, over 30 years, being now a father just 24 years into it, still learning, nothing has exposed me, humbled me, and refined me more than that place, right? Nothing has. Because God called me to be married, and it's the primary earthly covenant I have. And so elders, that has to be their primary focus, those that are married. But I also want to address the uh, elephant in the passage, and that is whenever elders are spoken of, you find the pronoun he, right? The issue of male eldership. And so I, I want to talk to that briefly. And ultimately, I think we need a larger conversation that incorporates, obviously, our sisters and women in the conversation. But I'm preaching right now, so let me say a few things. First, I, I don't think it's possible. You know, uh, Will Stockdale was, uh, uh, he and I were talking because he's preaching next week. And he said, uh, I said, well, hey, he said, I'll see you this Sunday. And I said, well, that's if I show up. You know, obviously, you know, this is a daunting thing to talk about in our day and time. And I don't mean to make light of it because uh, the reason in part of this is because there is a history of heartbreaking abuse, right? A history of heartbreaking domineering, heartbreaking uh, mismanagement of one's call as a husband, that's to put it lightly. And they're just in general with men against women. There's, how, how do you not look at that history and Feel it and not bring it to bear as you talk about this issue. It's impossible today, right? It's in the room as it should be. And praise God for every advancement that has happened in, in the last decades or the last centuries, whether it's been the Me Too movement or more open di dialogue about domestic abuse. Uh, but the sad thing about it is uh, oftentimes the church has been a sheltering cover for that stuff, right? Christian theology has been used to justify it. Uh, latest example, Southern Baptist Convention, right? And that big story. So, um, and I don't think any denomination is better than any other. One thing that we started a couple years ago, and it really came out of the Diane Langberg uh, seminar, was crafting uh, what we're calling an adult protection policy for both men and women, so the church would be a safe place, following our child protection policy. One of the authors of it, Jamira, is on our Women's Leadership Council, and that will be unveiled this year. We're still adding some revisions to it. It's taken longer than I've hoped. So, that's in the room, right? Yet at the same time, we can acknowledge without affirming that, that our tendency in culture at any time is when, and you've heard me use this analogy before, in the storm, 
when we're on one side of the boat and it feels like it's sinking, we run not to the middle, but all the way to the other side. And I would say the way that is revealed today is in the um, suspicion of any discussion about maleness or femaleness. Uh, those terms have been flattened and those terms as well, uh, basically equality has come to mean equivalence. But for those that are professing Christians, people that understand the scripture to be God's voice and have authority, I want to remind you of Matthew 19 that says, this is Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In that, Jesus is saying there's a distinctive maleness and femaleness, but more so, there is a glory to it. He's going back to Genesis. And there is a glory of that that the church cannot let go of, even as it tries to affirm justice. It's got to hold on to that because that is easily being washed away. That's the first cultural thing. The second thing is this. Um, in male elder only churches, there's basically, I think, two views that are had by those that don't support it. Uh, at best, the view is uh, it's ignorant fundamentalism, chauvinism, patriarchy. At worst, it's unjust and it's immoral, okay? Those, those are sort of where the two poles are right now. Um, now, I will tell you, for the session, our elders, one of the great growth points we've had, and it came at the behest of our sisters, I've only grown in my appreciation of having women leaders on our team and speaking into our vision and our shepherding in our church. Only have benefited from that. Paul's ministry had women on his team. Jesus' ministry had women on his team. That's non-negotiable. That's the design of the body of Christ. That's the design of team ministry. Yet at the same time, Christians again, if you're a professing Christian, you've got to ask yourself the question, is there a biblical basis, a biblical basis for male eldership and even a moral basis? And I'm going to wrap this up here. I've been taking a long time here because it's not a small issue. Um, when Paul brings this up and explicitly talks to it, uh, talks about it in Timothy, and Peter talks about it, they're not inventing a new pattern. You find in the Old Testament that there were female prophetess and a female judge, but there were only male priests. You find in the New Testament there were female prophetess, but you only had male elders. And when they're going back, it's not them inventing a new pattern. Actually, the one that established it first before they did was Jesus. When Jesus chose 12 men. Now, there's two things that people say to this often. One is, well, Jesus was probably just being sensitive, sensitive to his cultural moment, not wanting to upset anybody. I, I don't see Jesus ever doing that. He was killed because he upset people. He pushed against the culture all the time. But more so, for those that are professing Christians, I keep stressing that, and have some regard for the word, you have to ask yourself the question, 
If male eldership is unjust and immoral, how then is Jesus not guilty of that? Right? How is he not then guilty of that? Even if, even if he was being sensitive to the context, right? It still doesn't make it right. If something's wrong, it's wrong. And so I would say you have to wrestle with that issue, that question. But more so, if Jesus, the Son of God, actually practiced and ordained it, we need to ask ourselves more, is it a necessary evil? But could it be a blessing that he intended? A grace that he intended? And I would say one thing, one last thing, one grace that it might be is the blessing of what fathering means in a family. Now, that's a very complex thing, and some of you right now are like, don't even go there with my family. But I want to j- just imagine for a moment a healthy family and a servant leader who is a father in a home. Could you imagine it being a blessing, a grace? Because that's what God intends for this group of men that are called to servant leadership in the church. So, male eldership, I wanted to talk about it. I'm glad to take any questions you have later. We need to move on, and I need to, you've been very patient. Okay, character. After he talks about competence, character, let's hit this, and then we'll just do organization, because He majors on character, and the organization part, I think, is important, but it just flows out of the character. Character. Another quote. Character is always more important than giftedness. Just as in sports, the best players don't win championships, the best team does. Great skills and giftedness in what someone does can never counterbalance a fatal flaw in who they are. I would ask you, you know, do you fret more and think more about your giftedness and your talent than you do your character. In Washington, it's very easy to do the first. And I'll confess to you in my ministry, the thing that I would bemoan and be anxious about most of all was, am I I gifted enough to do this? Why aren't I more gifted like this person, like that person? Paul is putting the emphasis here on character of leaders. And that was important in Crete, by the way, because they had an awful reputation in the ancient world for being immoral and corrupt. Will will talk to more of that next week. But there's positive and negative terms that Paul uses here. Uh, first of all, he says that these elders should not be stubborn, overbearing, or self-important. There's a phrase in the last decade that's been used, hero leader, Right? Hero leader is a model of leadership that has been, I think, uh, rightly critiqued. Uh, Harvard Business Review here, an executive coach describes hero leadership like this. That person that runs a tight ship, issue directive, they talk more than they listen, they really have little patience, they project unshakable confidence. These smart and successful executives are masters at leading with their heads. Yet there is something many of them are now realizing they should probably know but don't, how to lead with their hearts and their souls. In short, they don't know how to be what I call human leaders. This is a problem of global proportions. 
for the leaders themselves, for the people around them, their companies, and by extension, for the world at large. And this happens in the church, right? Churches that have hero leaders and churches that crash, and it gets justified spiritually. Just about anything can be justified spiritually, right? And so Paul, early on, we saw last week, when he talks about his calling, he talks about himself as a sent one, sent by a higher authority, but number two, as a slave of God. And there he's talking about Jesus Christ, the servant of God. So the posture is an elder is not domineering like that, but Jesus-styled leadership. He also says they should not be quick-tempered or have a spirit of resentment. One of the things we will ask elder candidates and also diaconate candidates is, what are you like when the vote doesn't go your way? How are you like when people disagree with you? Can you let go of it? Can you divide out the lesser from the greater? More so, they could say, yeah, but to say, we need examples. And one of the things we always look for is, is this a known shepherd in the community? Often have they been a community group leader, a community leader? So people could say, no, I've seen that. I've seen them sort of give up and give in in the best way. Talks about moderation and self-restraint. Here, alcohol, but it can be anything that you try to fill yourself with instead of the Holy Spirit. An elder needs to be content foremost with the Holy Spirit. That's his food and his drink. Then he talks about greed. Immediately what came to my mind, those of you that are Pride and Prejudice fans, was Mr. Collins. If you don't know, he, he's the clergy, if you can call him that. You know, he, he's hired as a patron, his patron is a wealthy woman, and all he ever talks about is her staircases. He's a social climber. Right, there's versions of this. Clergy can be like this. The stairs they're climbing are at the U.S. Capitol. Right? They're trying to get their way in. It's a different kind of greed. Maybe it's greed to be in the inner circle. Maybe it's greed to have money and a certain standard of living, whatever it is. He talks about elders being able to have self-controlling governance, that they not be mastered by their pleasures, that they be a lover of what's good and upright and holy, that they be hospitable, right? We talk about hospitality in the gospel equals what? Come on, just say it. Gospitality. Gospitality, yeah. I made that up, by the way. Yeah. I know who said that. Actually, I didn't. I thought I made it up for five minutes, and I realized a bunch of other people had the bad idea, too. <laughs> but seriously, we understand people are craving to be around tables, right? An elder has to be saying, I, I welcome you into my home. You're welcome here. And lastly, a heart of worship, personal worship, piety, discipline, but not just discipline for, you know, a rhythm, a regularity. So all of this. Now, John Calvin said this, an elder has to have two voices, one gathering sheep, the other driving away wolves. So here's a question, and I want to say this before, I, obviously what Paul is setting here is, Lord willing, hopefully the elders in your midst then become people that are worthy of imitation or worthy of at least looking at going, you know, in the collective of them, I see some good stuff that inspires my faith. It makes me want to live more for Jesus and God. So that's why this stuff is all relevant to all of us. 
Jesus, of course, is the chief elder. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? That's what we're all after. But about those two voices, and I, this one, I think, doesn't come easy to us. This is the last of the character thing. At its core, accountability is about having the courage to confront someone about their deficiencies and then to stand in the moment and deal with their reaction, which may not be pleasant. It is a selfless act, one rooted in a word that I don't use lightly in a business book, love. To hold someone accountable is to care about them enough to risk having them blame you for pointing out their deficiencies. That really is a big part of leadership, right? For all of us, am I, am I willing in that moment to step in and maybe be really disliked and hated because I, I speak the truth in love? And, and I would say for all of us here, if, if someone takes the risk to do that, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Let's not dismiss it. Let's say to ourselves, has God sent this Nathan to me? But organization to close. Now, obviously, when you read the Bible, uh, it's not like there's a leadership manual that you just turn to and find it on page, you know, 458. But we have enough patterns that we can derive guidance from. And these are some critical ones. How does that character and morality need to work its way out and structure because structure matters. I remember saying to somebody uh, why, I've al I was always surprised how many churches don't do like uh, reviews, 360s, you know, together, leaderships looking into one another, or don't have an employee handbook. To me, that's just justice, right? It's justice. Structure matters. There's prophetic, priestly, and kingly. That's the structure side. And so, Presbyterianism is this idea of group elder governance or rule. Where does the word come from? Well, the word elder is presbyteros. Another word Paul uses is overseer. Now, our Anglican and Episcopalian brothers and sisters uh, see that word as overseer as justification for bishop. But the issue is the words pastor and elder and bishop are all used interchangeably. And so it seems more likely we're talking about one office here. The only place we might see some distinction is where Paul talks about elders who teach a lot, which we call teaching elders or ministers, and those that do shepherding and local rule. Titus was probably more of the first. But in this idea is stewardship, right? A steward was an ancient idea. They were entrusted with the keys of their master, so they controlled the gate, opening the door, but also so the treasures could be shared. And so, with this idea of eldership, it's an idea that I am an under-steward of Christ and I'm to share the treasures of the gospel with his people, not my own agenda. This quote is good. They are to do God's work in God's way for God's people with accountability to Christ. And if you go to Acts 15, you find another very important part of the ethic. 
There's not just one elder. What does Paul say here? Appoint elders, plural. We call it the plurality of elders. In this denomination, you cannot have a church unless you have more than one elder. Because we're trying to be sober about sin and power. This idea that you have a group of elders together. And when you go to Acts 15, the apostles meet and they also have the elders in the room. Even though they're apostles, the elders are there. Because the need of team ministry. Jesus put it this way, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Now most of us always quote that for prayer, and it's true principle of prayer, but if you look at the context of the passage, it's about church discipline. He's saying when there are multiple elders present doing the work of God, I am with you. I'm present. And so, to end things off here, critical to our understanding of eldership in this church is team ministry. Every member ministry. In the book of Ephesians, it says that elders equip the saints to do the work of ministry. They don't do everything. They're not competent to do everything. They don't do all the teaching. They don't do all the praying. They don't even do all the leading. They oversee the gifts of the body, and if it's working in a healthy way, the body grows in love, and it begins to have impact, right? You, you begin to discover your gifts. You begin to have a ministry. Our city begins to feel it. And so this is the vision that Paul is giving Titus about a church that grows by grace. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, your scripture, even the hard parts, even the parts we may disagree with, because um, it's a reminder we're not just hearing our voice, that we're not just in an echo chamber. Um, and I pray for our church as we wrestle with these things, especially uh, for uh, brothers and sisters for whom some of these things are, are very painful and difficult. Lord, may we always hold what we hold with humility, winsomeness, and grace. And may you bless our church and its leaders. In Christ's name, amen.